everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv. Well, nerds, today is a very special day, a very special episode. You've already seen it in the title, so I won't try to surprise you, but I am so, so, so excited to say that today's episode is a conversation I had with author and classicist Natalie Haynes. I have been such a huge fan of hers since I read The Children of Jocasta years ago, and we spoke just this past November to chat about one of her latest books, A Thousand Ships, which comes out next week in North America. A Thousand Ships is a retelling of the stories of the women of the Trojan War. So many amazing and tragic women get a voice that they hadn't had before, and it's truly one of the most beautiful, touching, and funny books I've read in a long time. I can't recommend it more. Um, but if you need more convincing, this episode will surely do it. We spoke about the book and certain women from it who get their voices heard, like Clytemnestra in all her glory, brilliant and cunning Penelope, who isn't quite sure what to make of all these stories she's hearing about her husband's escapades all over the Mediterranean while he's supposedly on his way home, Calliope, the muse those bards call upon whenever they need anything, Eris, even, whose role in the war is expanded upon beautifully, you all know how I feel about Eris. 
We even chatted a little about that king asshat himself, Theseus. Natalie shares some stories of Pandora from her other new book, Pandora's Jar, and the ways in which some mistranslations have affected this very, very ancient woman's story. I can't tell you enough how fun it was to talk with Natalie Haynes, how much I learned, and what a thrill it was to have her feel so similarly about Theseus. A real vindication. One thing you'll notice is a music cue that transitions the conversation. That's because we chatted about book spoilers that I couldn't resist hearing myself, but I wasn't going to ruin anything for you. So I am so thrilled to say... This is episode 109. Calliope is over your shit. The Women of the Trojan War with Natalie Haynes. So thank you so much for for coming on the podcast today. Thanks Um, for asking me. Oh, I'm so excited that you're able to, that you said yes. It real a real thrill. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Um, to the listeners, I'll just say, welcome Natalie Haynes to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. <laughs> Good. I'm so glad. <laughs> um, <laughs> you'll have to bear with me. This is sort of a, a newer thing I'm working on where I actually speak to people on the podcast. I've done it for three years of just my own voice alone. Um, wow, you're like <laughs> so- a stand-up at heart. It, it's really yeah it, it's been just me in a room for for a long time um and now I'm sort of breaking into talking to people that I'm a fan of and uh you know that that breeds a little bit of uh nerves oh <laughs> uh, it'll catch on I think Dialogue. thank you <laughs> thank you um well we're talking today both because uh you were so wonderful as to agree to it but also because you have a couple of books uh released uh, a thousand ships is coming out in uh north america and this episode will correspond to that which is very exciting um so and then you have pandora's jar recently out in the uk you've got a lot going yes. on with Greek mythological women. <laughs> I know, yeah. And actually, at the time of recording, um, I also have a play on in the West End in London, um, although it's being shown digitally, based on um, one of Ovid's Heroides, uh, which is another Greek woman. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much hemmed in by them. I'm not quite sure how this has happened. But, yeah, in every direction, <laughs> Greek myth women, many of them armed with axes, are standing watching my every move. I mean, aren't the best of them. I uh, I actually did watch the the German Street Theater play you're referring to. Um, it was wonderful. I watched all three of them. Uh, oh, last fantastic! Week. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, I gosh! It my friend found it, and we immediately bought tickets to all three, and were texting each other manically <laughs> as we were watching. It was wonderful. They were such interesting adaptations, also different and and well thought out. It was beautiful. It was a really good fun project to be part of. It was so lovely. I can only imagine. And yours was so interesting because you did Hypsipyle, um, which then lined right up into Medea. How was it working on that? Yeah, well, I'm, um, it, was kind of, it was kind of great because I didn't want to do women I'd already done in A Thousand Ships because obviously that's mm. the women of the Trojan War. And so tempting as it was to take back Penelope, I kind of felt like I'd already done Penelope um, in ships so sort of thoroughly. I didn't really feel like I'd got much to add. And I didn't want to do Medea because she is my next novel but one um so I thought I should sort of wait for her um so it was really a kind of timing thing Hypsipyle was in the right 
time frame for me and I guess I was in the right time frame for her so yeah it's quite strange how you have to make these calls because I thought oh I'll definitely I would definitely do Medea at this and then I thought oh no I need to kind of save my energy there otherwise you know when I come to write her her book I'll have used it all up yeah or or have some a different idea of her than you maybe want to use and Medea is so fascinating in herself I I absolutely she's one of my favorites by far yeah but it goes that way sometimes with um Clytemnestra for example in ships I I mean you can tell I think that I quite like her even though she Mm. is a murderous psycho you can tell that (laughs) as murderous psychos go she's definitely one of my favorites certainly within the book and I loved writing her chapter it's one of my favorites if not my favorite in the whole novel and then when I wrote her non-fiction chapter in Pandora's Jar which is a way of looking at the the women that we're used to thinking of in fictional terms as you know has their story come to us historically has that has it been retold has it been put in art has it been and so by the time I finished doing her chapter I, I sort of thought oh no I, I'm actually really sympathetic to her now and I was like you've had your time you've written her now I was like I would do her differently and I've got no regrets for the way that she is in ships I really love her that way but yeah I thought god if I was writing Clytemnestra again after writing you know 10,000 words about her I would definitely do her differently. So you have got to be kind of careful if you're kind of flipping between fiction and nonfiction and, you know, throwing a little bit of drama in the mix as well that you don't sort of accidentally break the thing that you're trying to create, I think. Absolutely. I, I find that in the way I've tell I've told the stories in the the podcast where when I first started I was just kind of completely doing things at random you know I I started the podcast in my living room of an apartment with two people listening to it maybe so it you know just sort of whatever I came out with and I did the story of Medea very early on and then I learned so much as I've now been doing this for three years and I'm much deeper in my ability to research and the sources I have and everything so I redid Medea into like a four-part episode that I'm much more proud of than yeah. than the tiny thing I did at the beginning because yeah there's you know you just learn so much over time I think that's exactly right I think that's exactly what happens the more time you spend with them the more they give you and so you know maybe that's how it should be maybe that's how everything is but it really feels to me like you can you know go in further and mine deeper Absolutely. And for me too, it's the translations. I unfortunately don't read ancient Greek. That's a goal. But so then you find a new translation and it's like, well, it's like a completely different world you're living in just based on how it was translated. Yeah. It's all fascinating all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because it must really, it must really affect the way you read it. If, if you're, if you have, I mean, because you're getting a whole, somebody else's whole interpretation, aren't you? So. Well, exactly. And it's only quite recently that women have started publishing or been able to publish translations because for such a long time, it was pretty much only academic men at a time when there were almost no academic women who ever published anything like that. Well, and they're so different based on that. Like, I try, if I can get my hands on translations by women, I do. And I think that that's what happened with the Medea, if I'm remembering right. I don't remember offhand who, who I feel like it might have been Edith Hall. Oh, she's just wonderful. Yeah. Well, exactly. And so I discovered that one and then suddenly was like, oh, okay, I'm going to tell this story completely differently than I did before, because how could I not? Well, this sort of jumped around a little bit from my notes here, but since you already mentioned Clytemnestra. Sorry, I'm a bad influence. (laughs) 
no, it's it's wonderful. I, I I was hoping this is what would happen anyway, but I have notes in case. <laughs> um, but since you mentioned Clytemnestra, I'll just jump straight into what uh, I was uh, have written down here about her from a thousand ships because I absolutely loved her in that. I I love her as a character because she is murderous but feels so righteous in it um and so the way you handled that and her relationship with cassandra really got to me so do you want to sort of talk a little bit about how you got to that point with her yeah it was quite it was quite a difficult right because cassandra has been in the book from almost the beginning you know because the the book changes point of view a lot of times uh i can't remember Mm -hmm. quite how many 30 something i think um and there are a few recurring characters. Penelope um, is one. Calliope, the the muse of epic poetry, is another. And the the kind of it's told in the past tense, but what's basically the present tense of the book, um, you know, the most recent history of the book, is the story of the Trojan women um, from the Euripides play Trojan Women. So Cassandra's had a lot of stage time, um, or book time, page time. By the time uh, we get to her meeting Clytemnestra. Um, and we've had her backstory, uh, which is incredibly brutal. Um, and so I, and I think it's pretty clear that I really like her, you know, that I feel, I feel a lot of common values with Cassandra. You know, she has this sort of disconnect from the rest of the world. And, you know, it's because obviously she's a, a prophetess. Um, but I, I think that's quite an appropriate metaphor for an artist you know it's how it should be you should be slightly off kilter in some ways and mm-hmm. kind of create something and so by the time she meets Clytemnestra I thought you know I've rooted for Cassandra for so long this is going to be a really strange sort of chapter to write and actually it was really easy I went straight back to Aeschylus to his play Agamemnon the first in the Oresteia trilogy and it is such a remarkable piece of theatre You know, there are so many moments in it which feel like they're straight out of like a Japanese horror film. You know, Cassandra says she could see black furies dancing on the roof of of the house of Atreus. It's like, what? You know, it just feels so modern, so terrifying. So, you know, not symbolic, but literal when she says it. And I thought, okay, so this woman who lives here is just kind of a pure distilled rage. And when you go back to the Aeschylus, you know, there are other versions of the Clytemnestra Agamemnon murder, which are which date to around the same time. Uh, Pindar, there's a crater, a, a wine mixing bowl, I think in Boston, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, which shows a different version. Aegisthus, Clytemnestra's boyfriend, does the killing in that, for example. And she just sort of stands by as a cheerleader. But in Aeschylus, she absolutely does it herself, you know, and and we hear him cry out. Intriguingly, we don't hear Cassandra make a sound, although she knows when she goes into the palace that she's going to be killed because she can see the future. Um, And so she's obviously very much more accepting of her death than than Agamemnon is, perhaps understandably, because she knows it's coming, perhaps incomprehensibly, because she knows it's coming. Um, But the, the Clytemnestra in that play... It's just an incredibly transgressive figure. There's there's not much evidence that it was performed again, which, you know, most tragedies, especially most successful tragedies, um, were. And perhaps it was just too alarming for the audience of the time because she is queen, not just because she um, is married to the absent king, to Agamemnon, but because she has taken political power for herself. You know, the old men of 
of the chorus at the beginning of the play come to her and say, we come to you honoring your power. The word they use is kratos, from which we get the word, for example, democracy. And so they're not talking about, you know, charisma or influence. They're talking about actual political power. And, you know, she only becomes more ambitious and more um, deviant in terms of female stereotypes, archetypes, as the play goes on. You know, this incredible moment where having killed Agamemnon, she comes outside, she's completely unapologetic. And the old men say, you know, you've done something terrible. And she says, well, why do you care about his life when you didn't care about Iphigenia's? A question, by the way, which I think is unanswerable. And that's why they don't successfully answer it. And she says, if you've got a problem with me, that's fine. I'll fight you. And she doesn't mean, you know, in a, a battle of wits. <laughs> she means actually take them on in combat. It's just incredible. And so that Clytemnestra is is the beating heart of of her bit of ships. And that may sound like an odd thing to say, given that she doesn't seem to have a heart particularly. But actually, um, as her chapter in Pandora's Jar shows, she is a woman who's been unbelievably bereaved twice of two children 16 years apart by the same man it's like you know what I'm probably not going to tell her she can't do this that's the thing about her I mean I've I find her so righteous in everything she does I mean it's horrible but it just feels so right it feels so good also because I mean Agamemnon is not the most likable man in any source certainly not when I write him <laughs> I mean not when I read him either I think I mean the reason I'm drawn so specifically to the fiction you write and and the books in general but is that my whole obsession with this podcast is sort of trying to take back the women of mythology in my very sort of non-academic but I'll like very researched way um and focusing on the women and, and their stories in the way that it, we often don't get them directly from the text. Obviously, it depends what you're reading, but you know, so often they're shadowed, overshadowed by by the men who wrote the things down. And I think it's important to kind of examine how they could be interpreted if you are constantly sort of aware of that aspect. And that's what I love about Clytemnestra because there's just, I mean, she's righteous. She has such good reasons. Well, I mean, you know, I don't want to necessarily explain away murder, but, you know, she understands she has good reasons for what she plans to do. And the way she does it is so epic. I mean, the thing is, she 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 has perfectly good reasons for murder within the moral code of the time in which she lives. Yes. Right? <laughs> so, you know, taking revenge for a dead child is a perfectly legitimate reason in Bronze Age Greece for taking someone's life. It obviously isn't now, but that's, you know, one of the things that's extraordinary about the Oresteia is that it, it kind of maps that moment in in human civilization where we go from from like within the family revenge to societal justice. So instead of retributive justice where you kill the person who's injured you and then their relative kills you in exchange and then and then and then and then and it never ends. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the world ends up blind and toothless it moves to being something which can be settled in the courts of law. Although, of course, it's worth bearing in mind that at, at that point, women lose all kind of um, representation themselves because obviously they're not jurors in ancient Greece in 5th century Athens. They're not, um, if they're prosecuted, they're, you know, they're prosecuted kind of via their husband, they're defended via their husband. So they stop having any kind of autonomy. So 
in, in lots of ways, it's a fantastic moment that's sort of documented by the Oresteia, this, this moment where we stop taking revenge and start looking to society to resolve these issues rather than making it personal vengeance. But it, it sidelines women. It takes justice or retribution out of the household where women can have some power and into society, which in 5th century Athens means they have no power at all. So it's an extraordinary play. But it's worth bearing in mind that there are versions of Clytemnestra where she's much less transgressive. You know, when the Romans get hold of her, Ovid, for example, who I, you know, I know you're a fan of as well. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but in his version of her, then in, I can't remember if it's in the Ars Amatoria maybe, or the, I think it's in the Ars Am. Um, he uh, has her as a sort of, she's, she's sort of a neurotic housewife who's been having this affair and she's worried she's going to get found out. And that's why she's sort of trying to work out how she can, you know, not get caught. And that's how Agamemnon ends up dying. But he ends up, I'm pretty sure, in the Ovid, I think he's killed by by Augustus again. So she loses all this kind of venging fury, you know, mother um, trying to right the wrongs done to her children. And she becomes, you know, the the woman having an affair whose, whose boyfriend kills her husband, which is a much less transgressive version of her, which doesn't mean it's not interesting and not valid, of course. There's no right version of a myth. But I would be lying if I said it was my favorite. My favorite is Aeschylus all day long. Oh, I, I agree completely. I mean, there's a lot of, of interpretations that have Aegisthus killing Agamemnon, or at least much more in control, which is why I... Yes. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's it, it, it's most, like you're saying, other than, other than Aeschylus' is Agamemnon. But that's what I really enjoyed so much in A Thousand Ships is that... As much as Aegisthus was there, he was very much like, oh, she's had some fun with him, um, sort of, you know, done whatever she needs to do to to take what he has and, and make sure she's like completely in control of the situation. But he is in it for so little time. Yeah, he's basically a Hollywood wife from the 1990s, as told by me. You know, his basic role is to go, oh, but be careful. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Well, and the way she admits that that she can enjoy sleeping with him, but also just think, oh, he's just kind of there for what I need him for. Yes, she is absolutely ruthless, my version. I absolutely loved it. I mean, I just, <laughs> I have so much trouble often saying it out loud without writing it down first of, of how I feel about these myths, just because I think they're all so interesting, but I'm constantly learning so much more. And, and like we were saying with the, the different versions and translations, just constantly adapting how I see all these. But I, I just find Clytemnestra particularly fascinating. Yeah, I agree. Speaking of the, the other character you mentioned that it gets a recurring role in A Thousand Ships, I have to bring up Calliope. <laughs> I want to know exactly what drove you to to having her just be completely over the poets, still doing her job, but just really sick of their shit. <laughs> yeah, I was really, I, it's always sort of vaguely annoyed me <laughs> the way that um, the Iliad is so routinely translated its first line as sing muse of the wrath of Achilles. Um, and, you know, there are variations on a theme, but basically that's what we usually get. Men and wrath is the first word of the poem. Um, but it just, I don't know, that imperative has always slightly got on my wick. It's like, really? <laughs> Could you say, please? Is that an option? Um, and generally, it's quite a good idea to be polite to gods and goddesses and Greek myth. You know, you don't want to go around being you know, too presumptuous because 
generally that counts as hubris and then you end up in let's say you know euphemistically a bit of a pickle yeah there's some trouble from that there's definitely been some bad results it, it can sometimes go a little bit poorly for you yeah um and so I kind of thought well how much fun it would be if she was just sort of you know not quite marking the time but if she was there going well this is the kind of poem that you should be writing I'm bored of the kind that that you want to do I've heard about all these men and I want a story for women so you can either write that one buddy or you can not write one at all and so she just got crosser and crosser as the book went on which was always a risk of doing her I suppose um she just gets more and more kind of snarky but I think she's the sort of in some ways she's the sort of um moral core of the book because she's the one who's always there reminding us as she reminds the poet who wants to compose an epic poem with her assistance that these stories need to be told and I thought well yeah they do and and I wish this didn't need saying because it's patently obvious to me that these stories need telling because they haven't been told very often and certainly not you know in any kind of detail for a really long time and then you know she kind of wrote herself really um because I always felt like the goddesses in the book could have slightly more contemporary kind of feel to their dialogue because obviously, you know, they don't die. So they're still, you know, they're still around now. So they could have much more resonant modern language um, than the human characters who've sort of, uh, who belong in a sort of nebulous past in terms of their um, voice patterns. But yeah, she was, in, she was incredibly good fun to write. But annoyingly, all her chapters are really short. So I never got to enjoy her very long at a time. They're always like a page at most. They were such a perfect way to break it up, though, you just to to get through her and then get to one of her sections that would just, you know, make you laugh and then head back into the very tragic lives of the Trojan women. It was it was nice to have that little little breath of entertaining, you know, I mean, just a reason to laugh in it. <laughs> yeah, I'm really glad. I thought when I was writing it, I was like, is this going to seem really like tonal lurch? And I've always been really wedded to the idea that there's no reason to separate comedy and tragedy. That's partly because I used to be a comedian, a stand-up comedian, and now write, you know, pretty sad books. <laughs> um, but it's also partly because, you know, I think they're both catharsis, right? Aristotle told us this in the Poetics. They're two different routes to feeling better about ourselves, basically, either by comparing our own lives to those of people in tragedy, generally better, um, or by, you know, just mocking the the lives of people who are worse than us in comedy. And it's like, that seemed to me to be a kind of fun thing to do. But I did wonder the whole way through writing it. I was like, are people just going to go, sorry, did you just have this really harrowing scene where this happened? And that, wait, what? What? Um, and actually, luckily, other people found the same. I mean, you know, really sad things happen to funny people sometimes. So it seemed not unreasonable to me. But other people don't do it very often, I guess. So Maybe it's an unusual choice. I think it's an interesting way of going about it, though, because Greek mythology is so tragic and so funny. I mean, that's what I love so much about it is that it is so incredibly entertaining, both, you know, in, in those two very stark ways, especially the Trojan War. I mean, the Trojan War is particularly tragic more than it is funny, but you still get moments of levity and... And I like the idea that that it's the muse who's kind of the one who's just sort of making it happen. I, the muses themselves need more stories in general, I think. <laughs> Always. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. But yeah, I think you're completely right. There's 
you know, the perfect illustration, I think, is in Ovid's Metamorphoses, where he tells the story of Acteon, which is really brutal. You know, the, he's, he catches sight of Artemis bathing. He shouldn't have seen it. We don't know whether it's accidental. Ovid has it be accidental or deliberate that he's just trying to cop a grope or at least a look. Um, and so Artemis turns him into a stag and he's torn apart by his own hunting hounds. And it is a really, you know, vicious way for someone to die. It's viscerally told, too. It's very detailed. <laughs> really, really is. I mean, and then there's the things which Ovid does to change the tone and make us kind of aware that there's an element of irony in play. Um, the first is that Artemis is tall, and that's how he gets a, a look at her, because she, he can see her sort of head and shoulders above her, her um, serving women. And that's such an obvious thing to do. It's like, well, goddesses are going to be taller than regular people. So <laughs> you have this idea of her as a beanpole standing over everybody. It's like, well, that is a little bit funny. Um, and the other thing, of course, he does is to list the names of all the dogs, which is, you know, brutal. And also funny because they're all called things like, you know, Nasher <laughs> or Whirlwind. Or, you know, they're, they're named for being fast or chompy or good at chasing things or whatever. And it's just like, God, that is awful and yet there's a sort of element of humor in there and so yeah I, I knew I was following in a noble tradition it was just a question of how how easy it was to maintain really okay I love Walker Hayes he's amazing he's so fun such a great entertainer and that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. 
So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Well, speaking of noble traditions, um, Penelope. Love her. I, I would love to talk about your take on Penelope, but yes, just Penelope in general. I absolutely love her. Yes, I agree. She's wonderful. Um, and she's always been treated as this sort of, I mean, there are different traps for women, I think, in terms of the way that they are talked about and written about, and in, in the case of Penelope, routinely um, drawn and painted and sculpted. And for the most part, it's, you know, that this woman, Medea, Clytemnestra, is bad. Medea is the worst mother. Clytemnestra is the worst wife. Um, and so we have this notion of them as bad woman, and then we know where we are, and we can all kind of carry on. And with Penelope, it's the opposite. She's the best wife. She's so good. Good, long-suffering, never-complaining Penelope. And there is nothing like that to get my back up. It's like, oh, come <laughs> on. Wait, What? How much of a pedestal do you think this woman should be sitting on just out of interest? And almost always, when I started to think about it, she's described as the sort of ideal wife by men she doesn't know, who don't know her. You know, Agamemnon in book 24 of the Odyssey says, you know, lucky son of Laertes, he means Odysseus, of course, although he's talking to somebody else um, in the underworld. He says, lucky son of Laertes to have such a you know, brilliant wife the the gods themselves will create this poem um, in her honour. Not like my wife! And that <laughs> right there is what is wrong with this, you know, men think that Penelope is great vibe. Because Agamemnon has at most met Penelope twice, I reckon. Maybe once when he presumably attends the people trying to get married to Helen um, Suterfest, uh, which is won out by his brother Menelaus. And then perhaps a second time when they go to claim Odysseus for the expedition to Troy. And both of those occasions were at least 20 years ago, because the war is 10 years and it takes Odysseus another 10 years to get home. So someone you met twice, 20 years ago, I'm afraid, I don't think gets to tell everybody what kind of person you are. Because do you know what? They have no idea what kind of person you are. He doesn't want to talk about what kind of person Penelope is. He just wants to be able to beat everybody up with how awful his wife was. And this is another way of manoeuvring in. And it occurred to me that it is an incredibly misogynistic strategy to have one perfect woman against whom all other women fall short. It seemed to me a bit, you don't very often come across the idea of a perfect man. Not in mythology. <laughs> no, really not in mythology. And so I thought, well, in that case, you know, who's she really going to be? And I had obviously read and loved Margaret Atwood's Penelope Ed, which, you know, tells her in a very kind of Dorothy Parkerish vibe, which I adored. But A, she'd already done it perfectly and there was no point trying to rival <laughs> it. But also B, this book was set in the in the past, you know, in the Bronze Age, however much it's written in English and all of those things, you know, all those caveats anyway. I didn't want Penelope to sound as modern in in this book because it wouldn't have fitted. Um and so Actually, this is Ovid again. It's the first of the Heroides, the first of the letters from heroines to their absent menfolk. It's from Penelope to Ulysses, which of course is the, the Roman name for Odysseus. And I, I don't think, when I read that for the first time, I don't think I'd ever heard Penelope's side of a story ever, because in the Odyssey, we're always getting other people's 
you know, sense of her. We don't get very much of a sense of her. And when we do, we don't know if we're getting her or not. Because, for example, um, Athene will put an idea into her mind to show herself off to the suitors. And then scholars worldwide for hundreds of years talk very seriously and, and academically about what kind of what kind of person she is, given that she wants to show herself off to the suitors. Well, we have no idea if she wants to show herself off to the suitors. We know that Athene has told her to. That's not the same thing. You know, is, is that her idea? Or has Athene put that idea into her mind from nowhere? You know, there are times when she's given dreams of her sister. And it's like, well, who? but what does Penelope dream about when we're not looking? You know, the first time we meet um, in the Odyssey, the first time we meet Penelope in book one, She's veiled. That's not an accident. She's incredibly enigmatic as characters go. Um, and so I thought, well, it was Ovid, really, who'd given her, for me anyway, who'd given her a voice of her own, you know, when she turns around and says, you know, that that fantastic moment in um, book 10 of the Iliad, uh, the um, Dolanaea, where Odysseus and Diomedes, I think, go off on a, an adventure. To the Thracians. Exactly. And eventually they capture the horses of King Rhesus of Thrace. Um, and it's presented as a sort of heroic exploit, um, understandably, in the Iliad, which is full of heroic exploits. And then Ovid comes along, and that whole sequence is suddenly reduced to, you know, were you ever thinking about me and your son when you did that? And you realise that for the woman waiting at home, the more heroically he behaves, actually the more irresponsible it is from her perspective. And I thought it was just such a brilliant thing to do. You know, she says... It, it, it was better for me when Troy was still standing because at least then I knew where you were and why you weren't here. But it fell 10 years ago. And, you know, eventually it concludes with so much pathos when she says, when you left, I was a young girl. If you came back right now, I'd be an old woman. And you realise that for, for Penelope, she lost the war. It doesn't matter that Odysseus won it. She spent 20 years waiting for him. Every chance of having more children has been lost to her. You know, she's just had to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait for 20 years. And I thought once I'd read that Ovid letter, I set out expecting with ships to tell the whole story of the Odyssey from the perspectives of different women each time, which is what I was doing with the story of the Trojan War itself and with its aftermath for the Trojans um, in particular. And I, I fully intended to do a chapter for Circe and for Calypso. And I mean, Scylla and Charybdis, I was thinking, although how I was going to do the voice of a whirlpool, I can't tell you, but I... <laughs> And some barking and then a glug glug sound, I suppose. But then once I'd written the first chapter from Penelope's voice, I thought, oh, no, there's no way I'm giving this up. And actually, I think there were so many voices in the book and not everybody spends all their waking minutes thinking about Greek myth. I think probably it would have been too confusing if I'd done <laughs> that as well. But yeah, it really was one of those things where I, I was convinced all these women were going to get a voice and Penelope pitched up and just went, nope. <laughs> It's like, okay, you can have it all. Fair enough. Well, and her voice was so perfect for it, too. I mean, the way she was credulous. You. Oh, you're welcome. I absolutely loved Penelope. I, she was, the way she was so unsure, the way she was, you know, not certain at all and just didn't want to, be well, didn't not even didn't want to believe in the story the bards were telling her, but was more like, this is not possible. Like, I mean, what is the likelihood that all of these things have actually befallen you and you're not just, you know, dawdling or stuck somewhere with a woman, which eventually he was. I mean, that's the thing we often forget about the Odyssey is it's a 10 year adventure story. It, it isn't, it isn't, because actually eight of those years are spent shacked up mm -hmm. with two women. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, 
little bit, little bit under 10 years, isn't it? A little bit under five, a little bit under three. Do you know, it's two years, mate. The rest of the time you are just having, let's say, horizontal adventures and quite safe. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, the actual adventures don't last that long. And they are, you know, if you're listening to this from the outside, they sound completely unbelievable. I mean, sure, most of mythology does. But even still, the way she, she listens and says... I heard you, you know, ran into a man with one eye who ate your friends. I mean, that just sounds so unlikely. It, it, her whole voice really got me, especially because she was sort of an added level of comedy with not in the same yes. way as Calliope, but in a, you know, in a way that she still was very funny. I mean, especially because I'm such a nerd and specifically for Penelope and the Odyssey specifically. So reading her sections, I was just, you know, kept laughing out loud. <laughs> Good. That was always my goal. Oh, it absolutely worked, especially for me, who truly, I mean, the smile on my face when I read most mythological content, especially fiction, where you kind of get a little bit more than we get in the sources. I absolutely love it. Well, good. I stitched, what are they called in gaming? Easter eggs into that book all over the place. So if you are a nerd, there are rewards for your nerditude. Oh, I'm hoping I caught them all. I really feel confident you did. (laughs) <laughs> I, I certainly have read a lot over the past couple of years, more than I ever expected to. <laughs> um, one thing I did love too is how little the suitors actually played a role. Yeah, they're just an annoyance, really. Yeah. Yeah. Just sort of a gnat in the background, just sort of she's swatting them away, but her real concern is the stories she's hearing. And Absolutely. Because I, I mean, I guess we all read the Odyssey in our own ways, but I have always felt like she might just about have hots for like one of them. Um, mm. And in my version, she has hots for one of them because there, there is a, there's in, I can't remember, Pseudo Apollodorus's Bibliotheca or something. There's a story about her having a fling with one of them. And already that makes her more interesting, doesn't it? So she's not saintly Penelope. She's sort of How racing she not? Penelope. And you go, yeah, why not? But I thought with the greatest respect, the suitors are absolute idiots because, you know, it's like three years plus that she's doing that weaving, unweaving thing, and none of them rumbles her. She has to be grasped up by um, a slave woman to them before they find. And it's like, well, I mean, Odysseus for his many failings, and you know, he is really terrible at getting men back to Ithaca. Insofar as he fails a hundred percent to get any of his men home again, the only Ithacan who makes it back from the Trojan War alive is him. So, you know, he's not he's not the best hero if you're not him. Um, but I thought, well, at least he's smart. He might make stupid mistakes, like, you know, telling the Cyclops his name. But generally, you can imagine a relationship between the two of them is a relationship between two smart, s- sort of sneaky people. And the suitors just have no sense of, at least as presented by Homer, don't seem to have any sense of kind of critical inquiry at all. I'm like, there is no, she might fancy one of them enough for a couple of nights, but there's just no way she's going to think about remarrying one of them because they're all idiots well and you pointed out too in the book that they're young because they would have been so young that they didn't go to the war right so there's all these young guys coming around and she's getting a little older and she just wants her husband back and it's just like none of you are worth my time you're not smart enough you're all just inexperienced babies who are just eating me out of this i mean i think that's it. I think she might have, you know, eyed a couple because, you know, they'd be like 25, something like that, 28. And, you know, she's sort of in her 40s. And you think, yeah, I reckon you would definitely have, you know, got an eyeful. Um, 
But whether or not you would have wanted to take it any further, I, I think you'd have liked somebody a little bit brainier. Well, especially when she had Odysseus, who's that's what he's known for exactly and they're known for being sort of equals in in their intelligence which is what i love about those two i mean as much as odysseus has major problems i personally love him he's definitely one of my favorite of the men as far as you know men of ancient greek mythology go as far as that sort of thing goes (laughs) yeah none of them are particularly great (laughs) yeah that's fair I mean, I always tell audiences when I'm on stage that the most dangerous place for a woman in Greek myth is anywhere near Theseus. The oh my God. The most dangerous place for a man anywhere near Odysseus, 100% <laughs> of the time. Absolutely. Just don't go anywhere near him. You cannot survive the journey. Women do quite well, generally, out of Odysseus, but men, not so much. Oh, and, and Theseus, my God. Theseus is... I, I love telling his story because I am entirely okay outwardly hating every single thing about him and so i know i don't give him a fair shot in the podcast because i don't see how you can he's just awful i mean he started it that's the way you right look at he's it. just even the worst plutarch calls him out on that. <laughs> even plutarch is there going yes he had quite a lot of marriages which started badly and ended badly and you're like mate when you're having shade thrown over you by plutarch <laughs> you have got a problem that is all i'm saying I just don't think there's anything redeeming about him. He's just awful throughout the whole thing. You know I agree. You know I agree. (laughs) It's become a running joke in my podcast, and I take that as a real point of pride that I've inflicted that upon so many people who had no idea of mythology before, and now they will come out hating Theseus. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Brainwashing done. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel good (laughs) about it. Not all heroes wear capes. Hello. Well, okay. Oh, one goddess. I mean, I think the way you covered the goddess was really interesting. And I would love to hear kind of how you went about that. But I just have to say how much I love that Eris got a chapter. Oh, I love Eris. I loved writing her because she's properly stupid. And you hardly ever get to write. She just because her memory is terrible, because I figured, um, you know, she goes around sowing discord everywhere. And the only way you could really do that is if you were sort of slightly, you know, always in the present. You know, she it just she just doesn't remember anything. You know, the, the, the memories just kind of slide away from her really quickly. So she's always there stirring up trouble, but she never really feels responsible for it. Um, and that was, I don't know, I mean, I'd only got one or two vase paintings to choose from. There are so few images of her. To, There's so little. You know, and her look is entirely stolen from that, as is true of almost all of the, the goddesses and quite a lot of the mortals and ships, their outfits, their jewellery, you know, nicked entirely from vase paintings, statues and, and various other relics in various museums. And so her look was quite easy, but her her sort of total incapacity to take responsibility for anything or to even recall that she might was it was just joyous to write and I don't even really know why I decided to write her that way I just thought you couldn't possibly go around you'd either have to make her sort of so nefarious you'd become like a a cartoon villain going ah ha, ha how much trouble can I make and I didn't want to write that because <laughs> it seemed boring or you'd have to have somebody who just genuinely doesn't feel responsible and there's something intriguing about those people um or in this case goddesses so yeah that's that's the way I decided to to go for her and I really enjoyed writing the moments where she you know she causes chaos and even as it's happening she doesn't really acknowledge that she's responsible for it so at one point she gets sort of found out spying on Hera and Zeus because one of her <laughs> feathers falls down <laughs> from the 
Yes. On their roof. And even then she feels sort of vaguely aggrieved but can't quite work out what's happened. Yeah, I loved writing her. I can't lie. It, it gave me such a thrill to see her name at the top of a chapter. I've loved her I mean, since long before I started doing really anything in the mythology. I, I started writing a novel over 10 years ago and stumbled upon the myths of her and, and Harmonia yeah. and found something that linked them together. There's very little that links them together other than their Roman names, but it just sort of got me going on her. And I just find her so fascinating. There's so little, but like you said, the few vase paintings that there are, I mean, a woman walking around with wearing all black and with black wings alone, I think is just one of the greatest things. I mean, I've basically dressed like that since I was 16. (laughs) Absolutely overjoyed by it, to be honest with you. I've been working that 90s goth look for the longest time. So yeah, yeah the, the punk in me, I was a very much a high school punk. And I just yeah, everything about her all the I just one picture with loads of eyeliner and yeah. dyed black hair. And yeah, completely it, reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. She's just I mean, the black wings alone make me happier than anything else. But seeing her in, in her own chapter and the the questioning of the apple was really interesting. Oh, good. The way yeah. you kind of expanded upon that. I don't know how much to talk about that because it feels like more of a spoiler than the stuff that's overall the Iliad. It's really hard, isn't it? Yeah, it's really hard to work out how much you're spoiling people and how much you aren't. I never know what to do. But yeah, you're probably right. And that was uh, one of the easier decisions to make was, you know, well, why do we have to have this war? Um, and I thought, well, I think the reader is going to want an answer to that. And I wanted an answer to that. And so that's the answer that I want. And it turns Eris into a, a pretty fun pawn, I would say. Yes. She's, a, she's an agent of change mm-hmm. rather, than a, rather than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. I've always loved the idea of the golden apple. And so to have it kind of used in that way was was particularly powerful i think yeah it's fun being able to deconstruct it isn't it because the idea of a golden apple appears in so many of these stories mm-hmm. you know there's the, the sort of golden apples of the hesperides or whatever you know the atalanta story um and you kind of think well golden apples are they're just MacGuffins, aren't they <laughs> yeah. you know, they're, a, they're a shiny object that somebody wants for no particularly good reason other than that it is shiny um and so it felt like that just wasn't enough in a novel. You know, you can get away with it in a, if I'd been doing a version, you know, a retelling of the myth over a, a couple of pages, mm-hmm. it would have been fine. But when it's holding up the weight of 90,000 words, you need more than that. Or at least I felt I needed more than that. Yeah. Well, and then it brings the gods in to things more, which, of course, com- I mean, comparatively, the the Iliad has more god interactions with humans than a lot of the mythology and the way they sort of mess with everything and have their own say and who does and does not live and i mean that's what i love about the iliad so much is how much the gods are involved and they're very human in the way they're just sort of angry and pissed off with one person or another protecting one person or another yeah it's a very interventionist kind of set of deities isn't it and then I think that reaches its sort of most perfect iteration in um, not a Trojan War play, in fact, but in Euripides' Hippolytus, um, Mm. which obviously is bookended by Aphrodite and then Artemis as the most petulant 
versions of themselves that you could hope to find. You know, they're so petty. It's so trivial, you know, the the injury done to Aphrodite. She's got, she's being praised and she gets to torment pretty well every single person alive. And then one kid goes out hunting instead of, you know, staying at home masturbating, which presumably is what she would have preferred. And she decides to destroy an entire household. It's, it's like, what? Really? Are you sure? You know, she begins that play by saying, you know, I only, I, I punish people who, are, who don't honour me and I reward people who, who are nice to me. And then goes on to tell us that she's about to destroy Phaedra, who's put, built an entire temple to her. It's like, you you haven't even made it through another 10 lines before you've disproved. You're not nice to anybody. You know, she is terrifying in that version of her. And so I completely based my version of, of the Olympian gods in particular on that Euripidean kind of vision of them as just being basically pure id, you know, that whatever they want, they'll take. They, whatever they want, they see as being morally right because, you know, they're gods and they want it. So they never have to question anything that they they think of or do and it was quite a an interesting experience writing female characters who have no concern for other people's opinions at all because you realize you don't very often get to write that you know because it would seem sort of vaguely unrealistic so writing goddesses who just don't care was pretty um yeah it was pretty freeing yeah, I bet, especially compared to the the other women that you're writing about in this, which are well, yeah, the Trojan women especially have have you know no agency at all, mm-hmm. really. You know, they're just in, their their whole existence is dictated by the the men who've won the war against their husbands and brothers and sons and fathers, and so this whole decision has been taken out of their hands, um, and they've got they've got no power at, at all except enduring what befalls them. So to write the kind of opposite of that of characters who only have power but have absolutely no concern it made it a really um pleasing alternative viewpoint i felt Mm -hmm. yeah i can imagine well we've talked a lot about the the women of the of a thousand ships mostly talking about that because it it comes out in north america as well which i i snuck my copy from the uk because i didn't want to wait yeah ships will be out in january and i'm not Mm -hmm. sure when pandora is out but she will also Pandora will also get her go. So don't worry, they're coming. They're coming to you. <laughs> Good. Well, I've talked about the children of Jocasta a lot on the podcast, especially just I, I love all the stories of Thebes that comes along with my fascination with Harmonia as a sort of, of non-character yeah. that's interesting in herself. But that's all to say you opened and, of course, titled the book uh, Pandora's Jar with Pandora. Yes. So I thought, why don't we sort of finish it off by just talking about um, Pandora a little bit, sort of that first woman who's kind of wronged by interpretations. Oh, she really is. My goodness, mm-hmm. can there be anyone who's been less well served by a translation error? I say no. No, there cannot. Because Pandora um, doesn't have a box, even though that's the only thing anyone knows about her. She doesn't have a box. It's a mistranslation mm-hmm. by Erasmus, the Dutch polymath, um, who is translating Hesiod um, I think he's translating works and days because the version of Pandora in Theogony doesn't have any receptacle at all. Um, right. And in ancient artworks, visual artworks, there's there's no image of Pandora with any kind of receptacle either. She's only ever shown in the act of being created, being sculpted from the clay of the earth because that's her primary role to the ancient Greeks is she's our ancestor. Women are descended from Pandora. Men are descended from Erichthonius. They're both chthonic. They're both made out of clay, out of the earth. Um, 
but we're descended. We're literally two different races, men and women, according to the Greeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what, in ancient Greece, is important about Pandora. The receptacle, the jar, is, is only in Hesiod's second version of her story. And when Erasmus comes to translate it, he takes the Greek word pithos, and he translates it to the Latin word pixis, which means box. And the thing is that a Greek jar, as I'm sure you know, if you see them in uh, museums in Greece or in Italy, they're usually wired to the, to the stand or to the ground because they're incredibly easy to knock over and they have a lot of earthquakes in Greece and in Italy. <laughs> they're very narrow at the base, very fat at the top, so they're really hard to keep upright. They're heavy and fragile, a lose-lose combination. It's like this is the last kind of receptacle that you want to put all the world's evils in. Although at this point, I feel compelled to point out that in Theognis's elegies, the jar is full of nice things, not full of bad things. Um, mm-hmm. And we only know the story where Pandora willfully and miserably and deliberately opens a box. But actually for Aesop, for example, of Fable's fame, her husband Epimetheus opens the jar. Um, and so he's the one who's responsible for letting everything out into the world. So Erasmus comes along and he sees the word pithos, translates it to pixis. Her jar becomes a box. Within about 30 years, you start seeing paintings of her. And it suddenly, you know, before that, she's been shown in a kind of Eve-ish light. You know, the, the story of, of Eve from the Old Testament has been mapped over Pandora quite successfully. So you can say woman responsible for all bad things, which, you know, is mm-hmm. always... A, a huge opportunity for an awful lot of people. Um, and then, you know, really quickly, she's she's got this, it becomes a sort of strong box that's got straps on it. This is real malice of forethought now to open this thing and let all these terrible things out. And it, and it's all down to, to Erasmus mistranslating this one word, pithos jar into pixis box. And I should tell you, in case you think this is just a, a gendered issue, it really isn't. He is also responsible for... Um, another idiom that's gone wrong when we say in English um, that somebody who's unusually blunt um, likes to call a spade a spade that phrase comes from Erasmus because in Greek the word scaphe which he translates as spade actually means a hollowed out vessel like a canoe so we should say that somebody who's really blunt likes to call a canoe a canoe but because of Erasmus we don't that's interesting. Isn't it? <laughs> what a troublesome guy. I know, oh my God. It's all well being the most celebrated Dutch polymath who ever lived. But honestly, God. would a dictionary have heard? That's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the the jar, of course, is is definitely something that I remembered from my reading so long ago in my bachelor's. So that's like the number one thing I've always remembered about Pandora. My episode on her is just called Pandora Had a Jar. It was really interesting to me reading that chapter and and hearing all the different examples of the way that she has been turned into this very manipulative and deceitful character over time. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Mm-hmm. How much how much misogyny is present in her her retellings? Because re- I mean, Helen gets a pretty rough go in the ancient world as well as in the you know, oh, later absolutely. World. So that I guess you can acknowledge. But Pandora really does suffer the most incredible fall from grace because yeah, Hesiod is shirty about her, but Hesiod is shirty about everything. He's just a grump. Yeah. Right? He's grumpy about his brother. He's grumpy about women. And any kind of story where he can be cross about brothers and women <laughs> is his absolute best day ever. <laughs> and so the story of Pandora being dropped off with Epimetheus, brother, hapless brackets, of Prometheus, 
is is like pay dirt for him. He can't believe his luck. He can say everything's a woman's fault and a hapless brother's fault. It's perfect. But, you know, for the ancients, she's an agent of change. Zeus has decided that change has to come. And, you know, Pandora is that is that agent. The idea of her being evil is really not, you know, she's called Kalon Kakon by Hesiod, which is always translated as a beautiful evil. But of course, as the Greekists listening will know, both of those words can be visual or moral. And there's no, there's absolutely no indication as to which it is. Is she a beautiful evil or an ugly good? You know, we're told that she's beautiful because she's created by Hephaestus and, you know, dressed and made beautiful by other gods and goddesses. But why would we assume that she's, why can't she be beautiful ugly? rather than beautiful evil? Why does it have to be her morals that are evil as opposed to something about her? The French have a phrase, jolie laide, which means beautiful, ugly. Why can't Hesiod have coined that first? You know, we just want her to be bad because she's a woman. As if that's not something that happens all the time too with all of these things. (laughs) But I mean, it's especially dangerous or, you know, long lasting that the first woman got to be yeah. told that way you know uh, yeah because he says that you know after pandora arrives the sort of carefree age of man is at an end but the carefree age of man has been brought to an end actually by prometheus stealing fire so these two huge shifts happen one on top of the other and zeus sends pandora to us um as as an exchange for fire having been stolen but these you know it, it just is true that the human race evolved an enormous amount when fire was discovered. Mm-hmm. So that's really not a that's really not a mistake. You know, it's a it's a really good mythic retelling of what actually happened in history. Is everything changes when we discover fire, and you know the Greek version of that is when Prometheus steals it from the gods and gives it to us. And so everything changes, and then Pandora comes along, and everything changes all the more. She's the agent of change after Prometheus has sort of started everything rolling. It's like, well, you know, that sounds okay. The carefree age of men is at an end, but does the carefree age of men sound great? What am I eating in the carefree <laughs> age of men if I haven't got, if I can't cook anything because we haven't got fire? You know, I'm not sure I'm all here for the carefree age of men. That sounds like, you know, what? Am I just going to gnaw on the leg of something? I don't it doesn't sound it. carefree. No, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't sound carefree. No. <laughs> it sounds like poor dentistry is going to happen for you. There's nothing yeah. else. I'm not here for it at all. Well, and it's so tough when, you know, the some of the earliest versions of so many of the stories we have come from a guy who was particularly uh, prone to being angry with women and brothers, like you say. I mean, Hesiod gives us so many of the first versions of myths, but it's he was in, by no means not biased. No, I mean, he's an incredibly biased source, which doesn't for a minute make him less valuable or less interesting. But it does mean you have to read him with a slightly critical eyebrow mm-hmm. and at least look at some other options. He's so important. But I always I one of the things I remember most from my mythology prof in my undergrad was her just casually mentioning how much he hated women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean problematic <laughs> statement or partic- a bit harsh maybe I, I mean i think that's probably i, I don't think it's, it's wildly inaccurate i you know it's really difficult isn't it with um writers who sort of predate mm. our values to to identify how much they do or don't coincide with those values because it's like well 
you know, the, the traditional question presented to students here is Euripides misogynist or feminist? It's like, well, that's a little bit like saying Euripides, you know, space travel or, <laughs> or scuba diving. They're after him. So in lots of ways, it doesn't really, right. you know, it doesn't apply. I think he's one of the great feminist writers of all time. But of course, that's not a description that he would have recognized. So, you know, it's not it's not a kind of legitimate way in lots of, mm-hmm. of ways of, of describing him just because that's how I interpret him doesn't mean it's remotely, you know, reasonable to expect him to fulfill my criteria of what feminism is. Of course, it's not. No. And I mean, I think, well, just to get into Euripides then, but I, I absolutely love his take on the women, but I think it's less about feminism and more about him just giving them a voice. So I think we can, we really often take it or or really connect with it because he just gives women a personality in a way that doesn't exist a lot. Yeah, Edith Hall made the argument, which I find really hard to dispute in any way, that he must have had an incredible actor mm. who he worked with a lot who could just do mm. women brilliantly because it can't possibly be an accident that there are so many of these incredible female roles in Euripides was he just fascinated by women's inner lives sure he must mm-hmm. have been or he couldn't have written it but it, it's a good strong argument isn't it that he's just this writer who's got this incredible actor who can really nail it and you go well yeah I guess you would then and you just keep doing it I love that idea that that's what he I was working too. with too yeah, yeah. I mean, I just love his women. His Medea makes me happier than anything. It is the bomb. It's just it wonderful. Is the absolute bomb. Yeah. It just makes you love her in a way that you love Clytemnestra, and neither of them are particularly lovable. <laughs> yeah, but that's great writing for you. That's exactly what it looks like. You know, that bit where people always kind of worry about whether a character is sympathetic. It's like, honestly, couldn't matter less. Mm-hmm. Are they sympathetic? No. Do I want to know what happens next? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really do. Do I want to maybe have a conversation with them at a fair enough distance? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, a few meters. Out of Axe's reach, let's say. Exactly. <laughs> or poisonous cloaks. Yes, don't necessarily <laughs> open that box. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. This is good advice for us all. Thank you so much for speaking with me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Ugh, nerds. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you loved every minute of this conversation just like I did. I really can't express how exciting this was and how much I learned. We spoke back in November, but I edited it recently and the episode just made me so happy again. For reference to the plays we were referring to at the top of the episode um, were the 15 Heroines series that were put on by the German Street Theatre in London back in November. They were retellings of Ovid's Heroides. They were utterly beautiful. The books of Natalie Haynes that are referenced are A Thousand Ships, which is out soon, I think next week, in North America, and it's already available in the UK and probably elsewhere. Pandora's Jar is out eventually in North America, but it is available in the UK and, again, probably elsewhere. The Children of Jocasta is available everywhere, as far as I know, and all of this will be in the episode description should you need to refer back. Thank you all so much. Perhaps this is the time for a rating and a review? give it a think. I am Liv and I love this shit. Okay.
I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. 